Hi, I'm Amy Porter. Some of you know me as a flutist and a classical musician, others as a professor, and some of you know me as a publisher and arranger. I'm a stepmom, I'm a business owner, and I'm the founder of a couple of nonprofits. And this is my podcast. My core mission as an entrepreneur is to appreciate what I have around me. And then I try and see as clearly as possible how I can help. So let's talk. Let's share information. Let's laugh and sometimes cry over the things that we have to work through in life and in music, in business and family and relationships. Come on into my Porter Flute pod. Welcome to Porter Flute Pod. It's season two, episode 20, and you're in our Friendcast episode. Joining me in sharing a love for flute and saxophone is Dr. Timothy McAllister, Grammy Award-winning performer and extraordinary pedagogue. Listen in on our conversation if you want to raise your own musical bar. We'll discuss real situations in the practice room hybridizing pedagogical influences, and what to know when you're on the gig. We'll celebrate our mentor, Donald J. Sinta. Donald Sinta has been a great influence on so many of us. We thought we'd mention him throughout. Joining us in the pod is Justine Sedke and Alan J. Tomasetti, and we decided to feature my performance with Dr. McAllister. It's available on YouTube. It's for flute and saxophone and piano. It's called Epitaph to Jean Harlow, Opus 164, written in 1937 by Charles Cochlein. The pianist is Liz Ames. Welcome to Porter Flute Pod. We're so glad you're here. Welcome to Porter Flute Pod, Dr. McAllister. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. I met you as a student. Can you talk about how many degrees you hold from the University of Michigan. It's staggering. All right, everybody, here we go. Tell me about all your degrees. So, uh, well, I have a, back before they split the degree into two degrees, I, I, I was a wind instrument C major for bachelors. So that meant that it was a performance degree with teaching certification. That's all it meant. Now at Michigan, that is separated into two separate degrees, music education and performance. The students walk away with literally two pieces of paper. So I was WNC and then uh, I stayed for the master's and I did a master's in performance and a master's in conducting, wind conducting. I was recruited by Gustav Meyer for orchestra to be orchestra uh, conducting major. Uh, but then he retired and no, no offense to Ken Kiesler, but I, but uh, I, I worshiped Bob Reynolds. Uh, and so really I kind of shifted and pivoted my interest to, to study with, with Robert Reynolds and, and to be a wind conducting major. Um, so that was two. That, and then the first degree was one. So that's three degrees. Then I graduated with those degrees. And then I uh, got my first teaching position right out of my master's degree at the state Univers university of New York at Potsdam Crane School of Music, where you have a former student teaching there now. And that was my first job out of Michigan. And I was there for three years. But when I was hired at the time, the dean at the time said, if, if you're going to get tenure here, you will have to have a doctorate. So I said to him at the time, uh, I'm not prepared to be here for close to a decade and then turn right around and go back to school. 
So I said, if, if I'm to have the doctorate for tenure, then you have to facilitate me being able to go back to school. So we worked out this arrangement that I would teach for three years uh, and then go get my doctorate. And, you know, at the time it felt strange to try to force, an, you know, another degree onto, you know, out of Michigan, but it was easiest path to go back to school. And because I did, because I did two masters at Michigan, it meant that I could really do an express doctorate is really what it meant. So I arranged after my third year, I went on leave, academic leave from Potsdam, and I did my coursework in one year of the DMA, and that's where I met you. And so I went back, and so yes, four degrees from the University of Michigan. I am guilty of leading maize and blue. Were you taking lessons the whole time? Was he on you sure. still about you know your scales and your etudes and is he still at that level given mm. you all donaldson to gave yeah he did certainly in the master's degree i mean that, that was certainly you know continuation of that work um you know i think like with all of all of us with our students when the longer and longer we're with our students it, it does feel like we become slightly more hands-off as we get as they get closer to you know to really jumping out into the world I think we start to become more of a mentor and a, and a guide through the profession more than we are hammering them on their scales and all of that but you know he was always right up until the very end and he was going to call you out on everything during my doctorate now it was interesting because I did my coursework in one year so I was in residence for one year um, but he left in the middle of the year for a sabbatical <laughs> So I, I, he handed the studio over to me and I was like in a visiting instructor sabbatical replacement for, for the saxophone studio while I was doing my DMA. So I was the teaching assistant who had been elevated to the sabbatical replacement. I was really stressed. So I got one semester with him as a DMA student other than coming back to do my recitals. And most of our lessons were him saying, let's go, let's go across the street and have coffee. And they were great. Those were just as good as any lesson of, of, of him just calling me out on something or working on rep. There was one major lesson I had with him, and I was going to premiere this concerto by Andrew Mead, who was, you know, our chair of our theory department at the time, wrote this gnarly, crazy saxophone concerto. We had to pay players to play the parts. And uh, it was a it was a whole retrospective of his music that was done at Rackham down Rackham Auditorium downtown. And it was this wild concerto. I spent probably two years working on it and with this idea that we would play it on this for this occasion. And I, I distinctly remember th uh, having this lesson where, where, where Don didn't know the piece. I mean, he had seen it before. He, he just kind of scoffed at it as ridiculous. And, you know, it's not like he was felt like he was ever going to learn it. But we had this lesson where I came in to play it and he switched under his reading glasses. He had the full score out and I played it for him and he took me for a ride. It was a great lesson because he didn't even, he didn't know the piece and he, he saw and heard everything. And it just really, really reminded me of just how ensconced he was in the whole new music scene in the 1960s and seventies and how that, that never left him and his ability to like tear through a score and call you out on every little thing and, and see and hear it in this expansive way when he was also intimidated to try to talk about it because he couldn't, he didn't know how to play it. So it was not about any of the notes. It was about only music. And I think that to me is when I started to truly understand the, the, the importance of, of teaching being not about outplaying your students. You know, great teaching is not about outplaying your students. 
you know, and uh, th that was something, I mean, he could outplay you on anything that he knew, but I think with his older students, when they, he wanted them to reach out into worlds of repertoire and composers that he had no knowledge of, right? That was his job to push us into that world. So if we were going to bring something to him that he didn't know, it was never going to be about outplaying us. It was going to be about helping us like discover what to do with this music further. And yeah, uh, so I, I think that was, it was, I do believe it was my one actual like applied lesson I had in my DMA with him. And it was a great one. <laughs> it's funny. Donald Sinta's studio that you were in was an amazing studio. I, I was at the concerts. I was sitting with him at meetings. I was listening to him. I learned so much from him about just how to treat a studio, sensing. And I, I would go as far as to say that sensing is a good ability in academia. Donald Sinta taught me to sense. He taught me to make sure your students are in the, in the practice room by 7.30 a.m. And once I proposed that, they were. And guess what? He would come back and tell me, who was in the practice room at 7.30 and what kind of scale they were doing. Uh, I've already told one Donald Sinta story on this podcast, and um, he is so venerable because of his outspokenness, because of his humor, because of the way he's such a gentleman that never, ever did you feel um, overburdened or threatened in his teaching. So the first thing I want to ask is, was circular breathing mandatory for every sax player? Mm. Uh, no, I, I would say in terms of his curriculum, no. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I, I think, no, I, but I certainly know that he felt that the tides were turning in our repertoire, that, that, that we were reaching a point where there, where a decade earlier, or at least a decade earlier than when you and I met, certainly we had reached a point where altissimo register training was mandatory. We were starting to hit the the, the kind of new frontier of, of of what we call extended techniques, where circular breathing had been around for decades. I mean, there were famous jazz musicians circular breathing in the '60s, you know, and and trumpet players were circular breathing in the '30s. So. You know, there, there there was a sense that it was integrated in wind culture, but it wasn't necessarily being showing up in literature, right? Unless you wanted to play a Boza etude with, you know, circular breathing all the way through. That was probably in his mind at, the, you know, in, in the 80s and 90s, that would have been some something closer to a gimmick. But what we started to see in the starting in the 1990s was there was literature being written in which circular breathing was an element of the of the theatrics of the piece. You probably saw that maybe with some some uh, Robert Dix music or some of the, you know some of this repertoire. You know we've seen this in other in clarinet. The clarinet world has some of those composers where they're writing for the techniques, right? And so I'd say by the '90s he was he was switching over to this to, to this idea that hey the, the, there there's there is a movement within our repertoire. I'm not necessarily equipped to demonstrate that, but he was the best at leading us to the resources. If there was something he couldn't honestly do, whether it was slap tonguing or or uh, uh, or or circular breathing, he he could get us there without having again without having to necessarily demonstrate it himself, and that is a great mark of a teacher. So it I'd say in my studio, what's now happened over the course of a 
of a of a 20 year arc for, in that case it is mandatory in my studio right we we've reached a point where and I, you know this may come up later in this in this discussion but i mean uh not to take anything away from my win colleagues but you have an amazing profession that's relatively been set for a long time i mean you've added to the profession but the status quo of the profession is is at least 100 years old if you want to talk about Marcel Moise and you want to talk about, you know, the, you know, the great clarinet pedagogues of the, the turn of the 20th century, or you want to talk about Tabato in the turn of the 20th century in the oboe world, I mean, th this, this gr the, the, the landmarks of pedagogy have been established for a long time. And with saxophone, we are in the middle of it. We are in the middle of constantly defining it. And that's what's exciting about it. But it's also... I mean, it's also creates kind of a, 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 a flux that we have to be able to navigate those waters because, because if the students don't kind of keep up to date with that, then they can kind of graduate behind from the, they can come in as an advanced player. And if they're not kind of in the same stream with the rest of the salmon, then they're going to, then they're going to, then they're going to be completely lost when they graduate. Uh, so that actually creates a bit of stress, I find, in 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 the studio teaching for the in the saxophone world right now. Kind of like memory for a lot of people, mm -hmm. memory requirement. But yeah. hey, <laughs> it's what makes a performance. Yeah, I mean, I think that and isn't that interesting that like that's a developing trend in wind culture that hasn't existed. I mean, if you're a violin, if you're a violinist playing core repertoire, there's no question you play from memory. But it's certainly not uncommon to see even very famous wind players not playing a standard concerto uh, from memory. Uh, and so we're, it, it feels like, and maybe maybe it's more so in the flute world, but but like it, it, that's just another element of expectation that has found its way, and certainly in my studio that that they they, they do that very well. And we're now upping the ante and requiring that all their chamber music is memorized, you know, and. T today is Fischoff, you know, and I have two quartets that are in the quarterfinals of Fischoff and their entire programs are from memory. And that's where we raise the bar on ourselves in order to feel like we can, can, we can have a place at the table. It's like flutist flautist question or flautist. The question is, do you ever have to clarify that it's classical saxophone? Yeah, all the time. And and then and now we're kind of in some interesting discussions about whether or not that is an overtly and unnecessary classist terminology, you know, like I mean, we're dealing with that all the time. Like, so is it truly classical saxophone or are we talking about something else? Is it concert music? Con are we con are we concert saxophonists, right? Do we categorize all art music as classical music? So there's a lot, I think there are gonna be some people that would say they don't like the term classical saxophone, yet 
where I think we've evolved is the fact that that there's a recognition of multiple genres for the instruments. So if someone asks you in an elevator, what, you know, oh, you're a musician, what's that case you have over your shoulder? And you're like, oh, I, I play saxophone, you know, and then gone are the days that someone would say, oh, yeah, man, like Coltrane, can you play some uh, giant steps for me or something? You know, I mean, that's impressive in and of itself if someone would ask that. But I do think you run into situations where people will say, oh, really? Do you play classical or jazz? So okay, that, good. So that might be uh, uh, an actual moment of evolution for the instrument. Uh, if you say both, then that's more power to you. But we have so many classifications because the jazz purists won't necessarily support the, the, the crossover um, uh, fusion, you know, rock jazz players or the pop jazz players and the R&B soul players. You have like you have this constant disparagement of major commercial figures, which is unfounded, like Kenny G, for instance. You know, it's like, you know, Kenny G doesn't care what any of us think of him. He's doing just fine, you know, but but, you know, but if you if you look at categories, if you're talking about categories, well, Kenny G is not in the category of a jazz artist, you know, yeah. if, you put, if you put him in the category of R&B or soul music or, or some other kind of, you know, uh, pop infused genre, then you know what, he's king of that. So I'm going to support that. But in the classical side, like we have, interestingly, we have these kind of purists that feel that that the, the classical side of the instruments must always still kind of uh, 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 bow to the French tradition. And, you know, someone like Donald Sinto was a trailblazer in, in, the, in the American contemporary avant-garde, you know, and so we found that our, our true home resided there, at least in America. We found that, that it wasn't necessary nor mandatory that we try to recreate, reconstitute a Paris conservatory curriculum. And in, in doing so, I would venture to say that we found, our, we found ourselves by not being beholden to the way it was done in Paris for a hundred years. I love now, that so much. It's helped and that's helped define us. And that's, that's so if we want to talk about what an American school is, those are discussions we get into. And, and, and I think it's, it, I, I don't like tribalism. It, it invariably happens. We can't help it. There's the very nature of coming to Michigan ultimately means you're subscribing to a certain kind of tribal uh, philosophy of Donald Sintas teaching and his way of playing and his teacher's teacher, you know, Larry Teal's way. And a lot of that was very antithetical to uh, the Paris style. And yet for me as a teacher, I've tried to break down those barriers a little bit. Uh, well, not a little bit. I'd say very actively, I will certainly speak. To, so the great, the great patriarch of the French school is the current Paris Conservatory professor, Claude Delong. And Claude is a dear friend and I, I adore him and his playing. And you know, if I was to describe my ideal pedagogy, it would be a mix of his and Donald's sentence you know, because there's such strengths on both sides. That's beautiful. And, and I've tried to hybridize it. I have, I have actively tried to hybridize it. And I also taught at Northwestern briefly. And one of, one of Sinta's great contemporaries was Frederick Hemke. And Hemke came right out of that mid-century Paris conservatory model. And Hemke was the American, uh, the American equivalent of the Paris system. And, you know, teaching at Northwestern, 
opened me up to the idea that 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 I needed to follow those footsteps. I needed to pay homage to the to, to that man as well, even though I never studied with him. Uh, and I wanted to know more and more about the hallmarks of his teaching. And I just feel that's made me a better teacher all around because some of those solutions will correct certain problems and some of Sinta's solutions will correct other problems. And some of DeLong's in Paris will correct. So I think my students are pretty worldly now. I think my students can play the game and they could drop in on any country or any kind of musical environment and they can, they can navigate those waters. That's maybe my, my greatest source of pride right now. We are not a, you know, a, a conservatory embedded in a large city with part-time faculty that come and go every day. Um, so the mandate on, on, on us is to do more creative work. As you know, Doug Perkins, our dear new percussion colleague, would say, you know, uh, schmooze locally, play globally. And that was our mantra even in Chicago. But in a place like, you know, in a place like New York, uh, Manhattan or Juilliard, I mean, those faculty, maybe some of them, may, a lot of them may be part time, but they live there and their jobs and their performing life is built around the living there. For us, so much of what it is in our life of performing is about to go elsewhere. Um, so I, I talk with my own students about the fact that our faculty bring the world to them as opposed to essentially being in a maybe in a embedded in downtown Chicago or, or, or LA or whatever, where they're kind of in the middle of a hotbed of things, but their faculty are coming and going. But, you know, you, we don't, our kids, all they have to do, if they live on North Campus, all they have to do is get on a 10 minute bus ride to go hear the Berlin Philharmonic and Hill Auditorium. Uh -huh. I mean, are, are, it's like, are you serious? You know, I mean, and Philadelphia's coming for a residency and New York's been here. I mean, Every orchestra comes to Ann Arbor and you and, and every, every time I've ever traveled to orchestras uh, to play with orchestras and it comes up that I'm from Ann Arbor, everyone, every single person will say to me, oh, my God, we love that hall, you know, yeah. because they all they all know the hall. Like I was with Bavarian Radio Orchestra, Bavarian Radio Symphony, and they were and they were like, oh, Ann Arbor, we're going there next year. We love Hill Auditorium, you know, and to be able to, yeah. to be able to tell our students that that we bring the world to them. I feel like it's the same mantra that our studio teaching should be, that we're bringing the world to them. They came and they were playing Rachmaninoff symphonic dances and everywhere they traveled to, they brought in a ringer from the local community to play the sax solo. So guess who they asked to play <laughs> the, the Rachmaninoff symphonic dances in Hill Auditorium? Donald Sinta. So Donald Sinta, this, I, I think I was a sophomore. I think I was a sophomore, St. Petersburg, Donaldson to playing Rachmaninoff symphonic dances and the, the entire article the next day in the Ann Arbor news was about Donaldson to, <laughs> in that moment. I love you that. They, it was as if, it was as if, I don't remember who wrote the article, but they'd never heard it, something like that in their whole life. And it basically, he just, he obliterated the whole evening for the orchestra and, <laughs> and all people wanted to talk about was, was Donaldson to sound in that solo in my case with my quartet on one side and then a solo career on the other side of that like i get i reach the point where I, i'm just too saturated and i have to make a i have to make a choice i i, I either have to sub out a, a quartet gig if i just can't be gone for a month because i can't do two weeks with my quartet and then go do a week or two with an orchestra that that kills a whole month of teaching right and so i i have my limits and i have to be able to navigate that
Um, I, I can't say that one matters more than the other. I certainly love the, the, the audiences, the, the size of audiences of, a, of an orchestra concert, but, but, but my quartet, are my, they're my brothers and, and we are a single organism. And, and when one of us goes, if one of us doesn't play in the group, it may be called the prism quartet, but if one of us is a, a sub, subbed out, then the sound of the group is completely thrown off. You know, and so and so it's so we work really hard two or three years in advance to organize our calendars so that we're not running up against my solo opportunities and then the solo opportunities for the other members of the group because they're active also. And we, you know, we're fortunately we work it out. I think 98% of the time we worked it out where the stars are aligning and our calendars are working for our teaching schedules and our solo opportunities and everything that works out with the quartet. I think the COVID um, pandemic really messed up everyone's calendars for gigging, right? And things were pushed, but you had, you had the combination of things that were postponed versus things that were being just straight canceled. And I had a lot of stuff that was simply just postponed. And now it's all being pushed into sort of like the same time of year and I've run into some conflicts where I can't do certain things for my quartet and the solo gigs. So those are hard choices to make. Can we turn to this fabulous uh, John Adams concerto? And can you talk about the genesis of that and premiering uh, that piece and working with him? I teach a I teach a, uh, a a little PowerPoint seminar to my to when, when I've gone out and done some of these Zoom master classes. I teach a thing called uh, the seven spheres of awareness. And it's like how to curate a musical life, like seven, seven spheres that emanate from the center and the center sphere, like on, you know, on the, uh, uh, of any kind of concentric circles, that center sphere is just you, the single, the, the sense of self, the sense of someone who is where all of all of your energy and all of your fuel has to emanate from the practice room. All of that inspiration has to be about your love for practicing, right? In that talk, I talk about one of the spheres. I think it's the sphere six, which is, uh, uh, or maybe seven. I can't remember now. It's uh, your 15 minutes of fame, quote unquote. You know, when that happens, how and when that will happen. And it's going to be different and differently calibrated for every single kind of person and player and point in their life and instrument and genre, because your 15 minutes of fame could be the, the moment you get called to sub in an orchestra and you need, to, you need to show up and you need to shine. And if you do well, you will be remembered and you will be called again. And if that's all that it took for you to have some kind of spotlight put upon you in a positive way, then, then, it, then it's crucial. You're ready for that moment, right? So all the spheres have to reach out eventually to that, to get to the point that you're ready for that opportunity for 15 minutes of quote fame. So yeah, I think I look at the John Adams as my 15 minutes of fame, but I think it was, it was born out of an earlier piece, the, the, the large 35 minute symphony he wrote called City Noir. And that piece was commissioned and written for Gustavo Dudamel's inaugural concert with the Los Angeles Philharmonic. It was his first week on the job, and that was going to be the first concert at the end of that first week. And they, they commissioned this huge John Adams piece for this occasion, and it was about a celebration of L.A. And John felt 
after years of pressure from saxophonists all over the world to like include some more saxophone in your parts because he did it throughout the 80s and he stopped you know by 1990 he didn't include saxophone anymore in his music like uh, Nixon in China and and Fearful Symmetries and these pieces you know so but he wrote a piece he felt that he couldn't write a piece about the history of LA and cinema and Hollywood without that that sense of mis, you know the sense of without the sense of a sultry saxophone presence in that score um so he he kind of went he went and took that and ran with it because he didn't just include saxophone as some kind of bit part the saxophone is literally like the quarterback of the wind section you know the the, the the driver of the entire wind sound is coming from the saxophone role so in in essence it's like a, a concerto from a seated position and i remember getting the first page of it uh because they had asked they had asked a regular, uh, someone that that usually would play with them. They showed them the part and said, um, "Will you play this? Or do you, are you comfortable playing this?" And the response was, uh, "No way." You know, and so like, well, first of all, that was you know, for, you should never say no. But I guess you have to know your limits, you know, and I, you have to respect someone who would look at something and say, "Uh, no way, I'm sorry." And that was just really how hard, indicative of how hard the part was. So he wanted this big saxophone feature. They sent me the part. And I said, I mean, I looked at it and I was like, yeah, that's hard. But if not any harder than like major, you know, solo rep I play, you know, I mean, or I've played or things I've seen in my quartet or something. But I looked at it and I said, oh, they said, well, this is just page one and the part's coming and it's huge, right? This, you know, the piece is 35 minutes. But I said, uh, well, of course, yeah, I'll be free for that. What are you, are you serious? You know, of course I'll be free for that. So I was in Phoenix at the time, so it was easy for me to get to LA. So it worked out really great. And uh, so I show up, the saxophone part was printed first and I had the part in August before an October 9th premiere, whatever it was. And I knew, I, I even, even with LA and even with it being due to Mel's first week, I know the orchestra culture when it comes to new music. And a lot of players will wait to the last minute to learn the parts sometimes, you know, or, you know, I knew that I had to show up. And if, if the case was being made for the saxophone to have this major of a role in a piece that wasn't a concerto, then I had such enormous pressure I put upon myself to show up and nail that part in the first rehearsal. You know, I think that was really important to me. So I, I had the full score. I was studying that like crazy. I had a MIDI of the whole piece. And I, I prepared for that moment as if it, my life depended on it. And, and I, would, I would dare say that I, I succeeded in that venture because in that first rehearsal, the kind of the shock from everyone about what this part was and how hard it was and how well it was played in that first rehearsal, I feel like that was the moment that I kind of arrived, quote unquote, onto a larger classical tier where someone like Dudamel is looking at me and saying, who in the hell are you? Wow. You know, and then and then at the end of that rehearsal, John Adams was like, come here, <laughs> you know, let's, you know <laughs> wow. let's let's talk. I think John was shocked at how well I played it in the first rehearsal, you know, in the reading rehearsal. But I mean, I think it led to the series of performances. We went on tour with the piece that year. I think I, it, within one year, I think I played it eight, eight or nine times. And then I played it with John conducting in Toronto because they were one of the co-commissioners of the piece, so the Toronto Symphony. And then, um, I, and then I think maybe a year later, I did it with John conducting New World Symphony. 
And while we were in Miami, I think this would have been December of 2010. In December, we went out to dinner one night and I'm going to dinner with John Adams. I'm like, right, right there. I'm like, pinch me, pinch me. <laughs> and, but we're going to dinner. And he's like, you know what? I think I need to write you a concerto. And then it was kind of weird because he said that and I freaked out, but I said, just keep it cool. Keep it cool, McAllister. Don't, don't appear to, don't, don't just go crazy on him. I don't want to scare him away. Don't scare him away. And he said to me, he said to me, so if I write a piece for you, do I have to include like all those multiphonics? <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> and I, and I said, no, I said, you don't have to put any of that in there if you don't want. He's like, okay, good. Thank you. And, and it's like, what else, what else should I put in there? And I'm like, I, I don't know. I mean, well, you do know the saxophone's range now is, is you know, basically four octaves. And he's like, no, no, no. I hate those top notes. And I was like, okay, all right, fine. And, um, uh, and, and, and I think we'd mentioned slap tonguing and things like that because he used that in the baritone part of Nixon in China, but he didn't, you know, he, he said that and he didn't want to do any of that stuff. He just wanted to write a really pure piece, but then he dropped it. Like, oh, sorry, he didn't drop it time went by and I, I didn't know how to handle that. If I was going to follow up with him or bother him, I didn't want to, I didn't want to be <laughs> bothering John Adams in an email or like whoever gets his email or whatever agent screens his email. I didn't want to be bothering him about this piece, but I also knew that this was my chance. This might be my chance or my only chance in my life, but then it was quiet for two years. And then, uh, uh, you know, in, in the meantime, I had been playing City Noir more and more. I think by the by 2012, I think by January 2012, I had played City Noir already at that point by like, like 25 times around the world. And then I get this phone call out of the blue in 2012, and I was in Evanston. Oh, no, this, yeah, this is right. This is, two, yeah, so 2012 is later. It was in the fall of 2012. And I'm in Evanston and he calls me and says, I've got this gig down in, Mel uh, in Sydney. I'm going to conduct a Sydney symphony. And I'd like to write a concerto for you to premiere with the Sydney symphony orchestra. And are you free? <laughs> like, are you, okay. like, are you free? And I'm, I literally, and, and, and uh, I tell my wife all that, you know, that she knows this story because she was with me. We were at a diner in Evanston and like, I dropped my fork with food on it. And, you know, it was literally a flabbergasting moment that John Adams is proposing this to me. And, and it was set for, for August of 2013. And, uh, you know, it was going to happen. Not only was it happening, it was like a dream come true. It wasn't just happening. It was happening very quickly. Um, and, and, you know, I really, I truly believe, and I try to tell the stories to my kids to, 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 to convey the message that you don't know when you need to be at your best. And it can be any time and you never know who's listening. It could be a conductor, a composer, a publisher, an agent. It could be a, 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 a faculty member who will have impact on voting for you for, a, for, a, for an award or an audition or something. It can be anything. And it can matter and it can matter. And so I think that moment with the LA Philharmonic was my moment to make the impression I needed to make with, with John. And I felt like I had a career to that point, but at that moment is when it just went in a whole new direction. So in 2015, the Grammy for the, the City Noir saxophone concerto album, that was for best orchestra performance. 
Congratulations. And, well, thank you. Well, and, and I mean, I, that, that I, I would have liked, I would have loved to, to have been, you know, best instrumental solo, but they don't do that for concertos as much. I mean, I guess, and it really tends to be so, it, well, and the fact is the entire album is about saxophone. So I, so I felt, I felt like it was a legitimate Grammy, yeah. even, you know, even though it really goes to like the conductor and the orchestra and that's fine. But uh, with, with, uh, with my quartet with Prism, we were part of the, the best uh, choral performance Grammy of a piece by Gavin Breyers called The Fifth Century, and it's for chorus and sax quartet. And that, that it's the entire album. It's an unbelievably beautiful, heartbreaking piece. Oh, uh, I can't wait and, to uh, check it out. Well, that, that won the Grammy in 20, that won the Grammy, uh, I want to say the following year or two years, uh, two years later. And that was for best choral performance. And um, and then the the Grammy that the Kenneth Fuchs album won was for best classical compendium, and so that the whole album was four concertos: the saxophone concerto, a, pi a piano concerto, electric guitar concerto, uh, and a countertenor um, solo voice cycle. Um, and yeah, so that album won for the best classical compendium of the year. And, you know, so I'm at least a quarter, I got a quarter of that Grammy, you know, so. That's so exciting. important is the flute to learn if you're a saxophone player and what kind of things do you learn from flute players to play the saxophone yeah i i mean we certainly look to the flute as our as our aspirational goal for what flutists are able to do in my teaching and i think the way most of us feel is we're always kind of stealing bits and pieces of the best the best things about every instrument you know there's, there's something very magical about how beautiful a clarinet can play soft in the low register and, and just this, maybe that stridence on the top, uh, you know, the, the depth of the bassoon, the readiness of the bassoon, the, 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 you know, the, that kind of woody lyricism of the oboe with flute, it's the spin, right? It's just the activity of the air. It's, it's the, the resonance of sound that has to be generated by the performer, right? I mean, now, of course, a $30,000 flute is still better than a $200 flute. And I, I never experienced, I didn't even know that about that until the first time I ever tried a really nice, it was, a, I guess it was a really nice Haynes flute when I had been playing a Gemeinhardt M2 for about like three years. And then I tried a Haynes flute and I was shocked at how much difference it made. I mean, it, it, you know, it made me not feel like I was the worst flute player in the world, you know? So I do, you know, uh, I worked so hard on a student level instrument to try to make a decent sound. And I, I learned a lot from that. Now that's true with saxophone also. You know, beginner instruments are very accessible, 
but there's a massive difference once we start talking about an expensive saxophone. But in the end, just like with flute, like we are in charge of the sound and we can talk equipment all day long. We can talk about plating and we can talk about, you know, densities of, of, of alloys and, and all of that and precious metals. But, you know, and Don Sinta was a great flute player. Like when he played flute, it was amazing. And he, he did that his whole teenage life and undergrad life. He was gigging in Detroit and all those books, if you wanted to work, you needed to be able to play the books that had flute in it. And so this idea of saxophone and clarinet was always a no brainer. You do have to shut things off when we play clarinet. It's, it's not an easy double. It's not as easy a double as people think. It's the behavior of the clarinet and the kind of the constricted nature of the cylindrical bore. But when you get into that kind of the resonance of the conical element of the flute, then we're starting to kind of generate what the, the, the role of the vocal track, the role of the air, the air support, it's playing a big part in how sound is created. So I, I think that's why we look to the flute. So the discussion of the pedagogy of the oral tract is as early as, as, the, as the modern flute itself. And, that's right. And we, what we brought or what uh, Larry Teal and later Donald Sinta brought to the forefront in the pedagogy is the role of the oral tract or the vocal tract and the, and the oral cavity. But then it was that perception of what you gain from playing flute by both Larry Teal, who played flute and clarinet in the Detroit Symphony, you know, he, he would still call himself a saxophonist, but he was good enough to play those instruments in the DSO. And, uh, and then he kind of decided to specialize and he was hired at Michigan to be the saxophone professor, this new post, you know, the first of its kind, you know, to say, we need formal training on this instrument, finally. And he was the first, first one that Ravelli called, but it was Teal's flute playing that Sinta would say informed his saxophone playing. It was Sinta's flute playing that informed his saxophone playing. And, uh, and, in, and it will go all the way back to the inventor, Adolf Sachs. Well, Adolf Sachs was a flute player and a clarinet player. His vision for the instrument was that it was a, could be a four octave instrument, yet the scale was two and a half octaves. And so from the nature of your instrument and, and saxophone, we are at the very core an overblowing instrument on that BAME system. And that I think is for, for, for us where that's, where that's a part of our teaching, that's still in its infancy because we will still have students that come to college that have yet to discover that and have that awareness of the oral cavity. We're, you know, we're gonna be reading Quants and Kincaidiana and we're gonna be reading, the, we're all gonna be, and for me, it's required to do the, Mar, the Marcel Moise, the Art of Sonority, because that book, when you take just that, the straight Art of Sonority and you just play it on saxophone, every, from, from, from the very first exercise, you're dealing with overblowing and extended range and, sustain and air support uh, so i don't know i mean it and then i think and also i think just with the flute culture in general um you're you're so fortunate i know it creates kind of a density of of talent and saturation of talent but you have so many stars you know and i love that about the flute world you have so many stars like you and you're you're some of your closest dearest friends and mentors you're all you've all navigated the profession in a way that you all have a seat at the table and you've been able to promote your instrument and you've been able to bring a lot of attention to the instrument. So on a, on a kind of business and professional model, 
I think saxophone players are looking to flute us all the time. I thrive in mixed company. And when I, and I love being able to talk to you about your instrument. And I like to be, if I'm I like to be able to talk shop with clarinet and flute players and or clarinet and oboe players. I like to be able to talk shop with brass players. And I feel like that at least gives a shred of credibility to me as a musician that I can speak their language. And I don't expect you to speak my language. I, I, and none of us as saxophone players should expect you to speak our language. But if we want to belong, we've got to speak your language in, in the classical side of things. And that means showing up, obviously early, you know, showing up and being as prepared as you can possibly be, but you can't just know your part. You've got to know the first clarinet's part and the way they, and the, the sound that they're making, because that's going to determine the reed sound in the, in that row. You know, if you're in the end of that row next to bass clarinet, you better be able to hear left to that first clarinet and you better, better be able to hear forward to principal flute and principal oboe. And we have a whole history of people that in my opinion, haven't done that well. And, and that's why we've got to keep raising the bar on how I train my students. So I'm instituting next year a whole new plan with my students that, you know, it's just got to be more, not, not that they're going to all graduate a program and walk into like orchestral subbing opportunities. But right now, my kids are first calls for the New World Symphony for any for any saxophone needs. My kids are first call. It's been that way for almost 10 years now. I'm very I feel very fortunate there. So I know I have to get them ready. If they're going to go down and play symphonic dances of, of Bernstein for MTT, they're going to get eviscerated if they don't know what they're doing when they get there. That's right. So, so that is a training ground that I can provide. If you're not setting students up to be able to sub on the drop at the drop of a hat and walk into that and understand the culture of what they're into, they're going to, they're going to, they're just going to, they're going to sink. They're not going to swim. And so I'm trying to build not an orchestral model in the saxophone studio, but I'm trying to bring, I'm trying to breed an orchestral mentality that feeds the solo playing and feeds the chamber, the chamber ensemble playing, you know, we learn to get excited about like the, 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 the ability to be this chameleon. And I've always loved that. I think it's allowed me to have a, 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 a career in that, in that arena because I know how to get inside all those sounds, you know, and, and I, and I think that's the core of what chamber music teaches us to figure out how to get inside of all those sounds, how to stack your overtones with an oboist or to stack your overtones with a flute player. Oh my know. gosh. Overtones. Yes. <laughs> all right. We can't end without giving some Donald Sinta advice. One summer at impulse, he looked at the high schoolers and he said, you all play so out of tune you, and he pointed to the pond that we have he said you just killed all the fish in the pond <laughs> the kids didn't even laugh they were still going they, they, on <laughs> they were they were gobsmacked they 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 came for a they came for a summer camp and they were and they and they, they, and they were obliterated they killed all the fish in the pond oh my gosh I, I, you know I, I, okay so is there a place we can go for some donsentisms hold on there a I'm repository gonna... on facebook there something. is. Hold on. I think it's still here. Let me check it out. Okay, because uh, there was gotta, a there was a hashtag. We've uh, got to uh, end with some classic Sinta isms like that. I think that I think the hashtag is centiped. Hashtag centiped. P E D. I have here. I have a couple of centiped quotes. Good. So here's one. Uh, the tonal makeup of your sound is like layers of a cake. 
avoiding having too much sugary frosting on it. <laughs> so that's one. It. Let's see. So here's another one. There are two things that nobody will tell you to your face. If you have bad BO and if you have bad intonation, that's a good one. That's a good it one is. for, for yeah. your listeners. I remember once sitting in a sectional at Interlock in, in high school and, uh, and he came in and uh, to run our section rehearsal. And there was a young bar baritone player who was putting the instrument together who hadn't really played a lot of baritone saxophone. We don't all play baritone and tenor. We get put on those instruments when we go, go off to, for band festivals in all states and come to college, but we're all really bred as alto sax players. And then we have Are they the up. same fingerings? Yeah, it's all the same. It's the exact same keyboard, just like bass flute and alto flute and all of that. But you're dealing with a different ergonomic and size and weight and blowing style and embouchure size. And the, the reed is literally, you know, exponentially larger as you get larger. So you, you're not going to see a high school kid typically uh, uh, thrive on the soprano saxophone. It just requires ultimately too much embouchure strength. And so, or at least certainly the junior high level. So we wouldn't start a kid out on a small saxophone. You can't really do that. I know you can wrap your head joint, you know, so, but, uh, but the tenor and baritone, those are, those could be a real reach for young, for young players. But there was a young man playing baritone saxophone in my section and he was trying to play and warm up and Cinta stopped and looked at him and he said, are you proud of that sound? <laughs> That's good. It's a good one. Are you proud of that sound? Yeah. And at the very at the very core, you know, I guess we all have to ask ourselves that: are we are we proud of that sound that we make? And he also he said to me once in a lesson we were we were working on scales, and he was like, "Do you want me to go get the janitor? Because the janitor will be." He's like, "Because the janitor will be able to tell you if you if you're playing your scales better than me or not." <laughs> so, so. He loved the janitor. He told me. Janitor was the one person you had to befriend in life That's right. That's at every right. job. Absolutely. They're in charge of everything. <laughs> and the janitor will know if you play out of tune. They'll hear it. When I finally met Don Santa for the very first time, he was waiting for my arrival in a car at the front of the Moore building. Hmm. And I got out of the car and there he was with his white hair and his sunglasses. Well, they weren't sunglasses. They were the reflective, the lenses that would change. Mm -hmm. The photos. Yeah. Photo and and he, the first thing he said to me was, Amy Porter, thank goodness you look like your photo. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah, because then he went on to explain not a lot of people look like they're pressed. Well, shots. that's that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, that's a I will. That's a great compliment. That's a very I high compliment. So. Very high I compliment. Laughed. I laughed, and he was my mentor for so many years, as you know. And and gosh, when he tried to retire, we talked him out of it. <laughs> I know, and then and, just, and rightfully so. I mean, honestly, yeah. he he wasn't old. He was not old. He was not old enough to retire, you know. And he had too much creative life left in him, and he has too much teaching left in him, and he knows that. And even now, he's still practicing. He's still practicing three hours a day, and he's doing it for nobody. He's doing it for no one to listen to, and I think that's true love. I mean. I actually question my love for my instrument compared to my teachers because I don't think I can do that. Wow. I think I think my practicing is fear-based. I think my practicing is about <laughs> my my practicing is making sure I don't lose it 
Yeah. And, and, and the high profile of certain opportunities has mandated that I stay on top of my game. And you know that feeling. And it's terrifying. And I think it's an element of anxiety that comes with success that people don't want to talk about is that that you're expected to be on your game the, the more you achieve. And I think for, for him to just love the instrument so much that he can't get through his day without having played it for two or three hours for zero reasons, for zero gigs or zero ears, tells you what kind of artist and musician he is. Um, and so anyway, I hope I will, I hope when I'm his age that I will love my instrument that much still, you know, that I'll still love music that much. And maybe we all, that would be great for all of us. You know. And we're talking about the Earl V. Moore professor of music. And I realized I was standing in the Earl V. Moore building and I realized how important Donald Sinta was to the whole world, University of Michigan and the the music world at large like he brought everyone to ann arbor along with lots of other people but well and earl v moore was the and, dean earl v moore was the dean to hire larry teal and to create a saxophone degree brilliant so, you know, we brilliant. have a be beautiful brilliant. history yes well it has been my pleasure to to talk with my friend you know you're <laughs> on an episode called friend cast thank you my friend thank you really. so much it has been a pleasure I'm so excited to tell you at the time of recording of this podcast that two out of three finalists in the fish-off competition are the sax quartets from Dr. Timothy McAllister's studio here at the University of Michigan. Stay tuned to find out who the winner is. You can find Tim's website at timothymcallister.com. That's T-I-M-O-T-H-Y-M-C-A-L-L-I-S-T-E-R. And on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook, he's Timothy McAllister Sachs. And check out his sax quartet, Prism Quartet. That's P-R-I-S-M-Q-U-A-R-T-E-T.com. Join us next time on Porter Flute. It's our Stay Well, Play Well platform, and we're talking flute and food. I could think of no one better to include as a guest than Dr. Julie Kim Walker from Texas A&M Commerce. You can find more about me at amyporter.com and porterflute.com. And on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, I'm Porterflute. Thanks for being here. I'm so grateful for you.